This is Stimulus. I was having breakfast recently with two friends of mine, an airline pilot and a lawyer, and we were talking about in-flight medical emergencies. And the pilot said, I think it's crazy that naloxone isn't standard in all commercial airline medical kits. I mean, what are the life threats you could actually effectively treat in the air? It seems a great return on investment. Without missing a beat, the attorney said, I think that's a horrible idea. You would be taking on way too much legal risk. If something went wrong, you'd be totally screwed. So on the one side, got the pilot, someone whose job is focused on mitigating risk to their charges, their passengers, and when things go wrong, analyze it and further reduce risk of dying in a plane crash or having some sort of airplane disaster. On the other side, the attorney mitigating legal risk. Cover your ass, or better yet, don't expose yourself to legal risk in the first place. One simple idea, hypothetical idea, putting naloxone on airplanes sounded reasonable, but depending on your perspective, it's either a good idea or a horrible idea, or maybe some of both. And those are just two out of hundreds of competing philosophies. This same dynamic happens with us in medicine. What's the core principle that drives your decision? Is it don't get sued? Get a good patient satisfaction score? Rule out the life threat? Have good metrics at the group meeting? Avoid M&M? Have compassion? Be masterful? In each of us, there's a balance of all of these things, but what is the core principle? What is the keystone of modern medicine? Ask Hippocrates. He wrote, practice two things in your dealings with disease. Either help or do not harm the patient. In the 17th century, this was shortened to the phrase we know today. Primum non nocere, sometimes pronounced primum non nocere, or primum non nocere. But however you pronounce it, it means the same thing. First, do no harm. Our guiding principle, in theory, is first to not harm patients. But nowadays, when you're supposed to have an answer for everything, what does do no harm even mean? I think we've gone astray. But I also think that we're coming back to it. I think we are appreciating the wisdom in primum non nocere and why it's good for patients and good for us. For years, a lot of my practice was based on fear. Fear of missing a diagnosis, fear of being sued, patient complaint, all the things we naturally don't want to happen. Let me give an example. My mantra with chest pain used to be, don't be a hero. In other words, if you have a patient where there's even a hint of a cardiac issue, where it's even in the differential, admit, even if they're low risk, admit, because you will not only protect the patient, but more importantly, you will protect yourself from medical legal risk. It's not worth it to even consider discharge. Why risk the stress of a lawsuit? Admit and forget it. What was the philosophy behind that? If I'm being honest, it was about 10% to protect the patient and 90% to protect myself. I know some patients did, in fact, rule in for MI, but it was a vanishingly small number, and the overwhelming majority, probably around 95%, ruled out. And I knew that the majority of these patients didn't have acute coronary syndrome. It wasn't always obvious which ones, but I also knew that some people were harmed because of this practice. How could they not be? If most did not have real disease, that entire group was only facing harm of iatrogenic complications, financial stress. My goal was to minimize liability, cover my ass. But in doing tests to cover my ass, my primary client 
isn't my patient. It is my fear. Fear of lawsuits, lawyers, administrators, peer pressure, fear of not being perfect. Who wants to show up on the QA list? I was a primum non nocere dropout. I remember an attending of mine, Steve Cantrell, a master of the aphorism. And at one M&M conference, there was a case of an acetaminophen toxicity and nobody was figuring it out. And it was test after test after test. And in retrospect, it was obvious what was going on. And Steve said, you know what? We've all become a bunch of lab ordering monkeys. And that's probably an insult to the monkey. He'd also say when someone would add on a CT of the abdomen, if patient was getting a CT of the chest, oh, I didn't know that proximity to the scanner was an indication for the test. Primum non nocere. So how does one introduce not just the philosophy, but the actions of do no harm? You're probably already doing it, but you may not know it. So let's take a look into the practice of some of our colleagues. First, Dr. Cameron Berg, Community Emergency Physician, Robbinsville, Minnesota. So often in medicine, we focus on errors of omission, what we didn't do, what did we miss, but we can neglect the other side of the equation, errors of commission. How did I subject my patient to harm that I could have avoided? The big game changer for me was around opiates, specifically opiate prescribing. Historically, I'd been of the common ER school of thought, which is ER physicians are seldom the source of an opiate problem. We see patients with acutely painful conditions all the time. We send them home, and it would be inhumane to not prescribe for them sufficient oral pain control. I mean, after all, when we look at the number of pills in circulation, it's only a teeny fraction, maybe 3 or 4%, that originate from ED physician prescribing. And I think the game changer, for me at least, was the CDC's MMWR report that came out in 2016 and really called this whole practice into question. It demonstrated fairly compellingly that even a two- or three-day prescription of oral opiates confers very real downstream harm. I mean, approximately 5 to 10% of those patients will be dependent on daily opiates one year later. So to me, that's a number needed to harm ranging from 10 to 20. And when I think about my own practice, it's hard to think of too many other things that are that dangerous. So I didn't stop prescribing opiates altogether, but I did bring this data to my practice and I brought it to the bedside. And now 100% of the time, when I'm sending a patient home with an oral opiate, I have a conversation about the risks and benefits of that intervention. And I've been really surprised because many of the patients don't want an opiate. They don't want that risk. Rather, they just want to know what to do about their pain. And of course, there are other options. And I have in total decreased the number of opiate prescriptions that I dispense by more than 50% in the last year. That hasn't been associated with any patient-oriented harm that I can identify. In fact, they seem to be more satisfied. And when I do give prescriptions, I give them for smaller quantities. And I've decreased the total number of pills I'm prescribing by almost 70%. And I feel good about this. Netta Freja, internist, Ellicott City, Maryland. When she finished internal medicine residency, she was in the mindset of working up every single complaint. Toe pain, eye pain, itchy stomach. She equated ordering stuff and telling patients that all the stuff was normal with good care. Whatever the plan, it always involved placing orders. As I've gained more experience, I have really embraced the idea of doing no harm 
by doing less. I realize that most of my primary care patients will get better on their own, that the human body has an incredible capacity to heal and improve, and I don't have to order stuff all the time. I can say, here's what I think it is, and I think that it will get better on its own, if, of course, that's actually the case. And a lot of times, that's enough, and the patient can leave feeling like they've been listened to and heard and cared for. I now appreciate that every lab stick can hurt and that every MRI can cause a lot of anxiety and that every time we ask a patient to schlep back and forth among four different appointments, they may not have transportation, they may need to take yet another afternoon off of work, which puts them in jeopardy of losing their jobs. The patients have real lives and real struggles outside of just how we treat them. And so one way that I have hopefully begun doing no harm now that I'm fully out of training is really thinking about what is this patient going through when I subject them to these different tests and are these tests completely necessary? Scott Weingart, our ED intensivist friend, host of the MCRIT podcast, a big change for him is how we manage fluid resuscitation in sepsis and septic shock. We used to flood patients with fluid. The more, the better. Get the CVP up. Fill the IVC. If that takes 10 liters, give them 10 liters. But maybe all this fluid isn't such a good thing, and we should start thinking about vasopressors early. How does Scott feel now about all those gallons of fluid given to septic patients? I look back at that with dread. From everything I know now, from everything I know about what vasopressors actually do to the venous circulation, from what I know about that excess fluid, where it sits, actually watching these critically ill patients so edematous and it making our lives miserable in the ICU, and from what I know now about how quickly that fluid actually stays in your bloodstream, which is on the order of all gone by one hour, it just makes no sense to me at all to give large volume fluid resuscitation to septic patients unless their septic state is actually one of fluid loss outside the body. So you show me a patient with horrible diarrheal illness, yeah, maybe they need a bunch of fluid, but if that fluid is merely going into other spaces in their body, it will eventually come back, and adding more is probably not a good idea. It may be an exceedingly bad idea. I'll give most patients that 20 or 30 mLs per kg, but if based on my clinical exam and ultrasound examination, I don't think they're going to benefit from it, I won't even give them that. And then as soon as I hit that 30 mLs per kg, if they're not in a situation of losing fluid out of their body, I just put them on vasopressors. For me, it's norepi, and that's how I moderate their blood pressure. Josh Russell, he's a community ED doc in Vancouver, Washington. When he is thinking about how he's going to manage a patient, what he's going to do, he asks himself, what if I was this patient? When I think about limiting harm, I've made it a point to habitually pause and ask myself one simple question. Knowing what I know, if I were in this patient's shoes in front of me, what would I want done for me? I think it's first important to be honest with ourselves that the potential for harm exists with every procedure we do, with every test that we order. And to that end, it's more realistic and pragmatic to rephrase do no harm as rather strive to behave in such a way that the likelihood of causing harm is as low as reasonably achievable. And I think globally that limiting harm is a natural consequence of us putting our patients 
interests first. So while we'd like to say that's our MO every moment of every shift, I think with some honest reflection, we'd all admit that that's not always true. So then a practical way we can reduce the likelihood of our not prioritizing patients' interests is by asking ourselves, when are we most at risk of behaving this way? In other words, when are we most likely to put our interests ahead of our patients? The most universal answer to when we are at risk of behaving this way is when our willpower is depleted. Frankly, doing the right thing is generally easy in the beginning of our shift when our batteries are charged and we have a full head of steam and a full cup of coffee. But when our willpower is spent, we favor doing the easy thing more than doing the right thing. For example, you've got 61 minutes left till your shift is over. And a 55-year-old guy with a few cardiac risk factors comes in with some strange and atypical chest pain, EKG, trope, or normal. The easy or expedient thing to do is just admit. To make it even sweeter, you see that the hospitalist working is the one who never gives any pushback. Bonus! But would you have done the same thing when you were fresh, when you were at the beginning of your shift? Would you have gotten a Delta troponin? Would you have watched him for a while? But now, that's going to involve a bit more work. Sure, it's easier to admit this patient, but when you stop and ask, what would I want, knowing what I know, I sure as hell would not want to be admitted if I were this guy. I'd realize that this is likely going to be low yield and an expensive proposition to be admitted. So, what do you do? What I found to be helpful for me is making a true habit of pausing when these decisions arise, specifically at the end of the shift, or really any moment when I notice that my willpower is not what I'd like it to be. And I take a full 15 seconds to reflect on what I would want done for me if I were in the same situation as the patient. Haney Malamut, ED intensivist, Cooper Hospital, New Jersey. When he finished critical care fellowship, his philosophy was, I must resuscitate all critically ill patients and be as aggressive as possible so that when I look the family in the eye, I can tell them, I did everything possible. In retrospect, that's a very unrealistic promise because many patients who come to us are already predestined for bad outcomes. And by providing maximal therapy, we're not helping that person, but we're actually harming that person. We're harming them in the sense that we're not giving them the dignity to die of the natural causes that they present with. We're not giving them the dignity to die a painless death. We're not giving their family the dignity of spending quality time with that person. Instead, we're in there doing procedures, taking time away from the loved ones and the patient. And now when it's clear that the patient is actively dying, the conversation goes from what can we do with critical care to allow a natural death. I try to highlight the fact that this person has a natural disease that is leading them to have a natural death. And we have the choice as family members to either prolong this or to do no harm to the patient and use other resources that we have available to us to make the patient comfortable, to make it so that they don't have to get invasive procedures, to make it so the family has good quality time with their loved one before natural disease takes them away from us. We're aggressively going to make that person as comfortable as possible. We're going to control their pain and anxiety as much as possible. And we're going to ensure that their transition from life to death is as humane and comfortable as possible. Alan Seeloff, emergency physician, Ann Arbor, Michigan. 
Primum non nocere for him is shared decision-making. Open and honest, patient-centered conversation about the patients, about the family's goals, as well as his thoughts and his recommendations. It's gone a long way to making sure that I'm doing what I think is medically appropriate, but that is also in line with the patient's goals for their own health care and has led to a lot better interactions and a minimized amount of testing without negative consequences of bad outcomes. Vicki Vela, emergency physician, United Kingdom. Do no harm is recognizing and acknowledging when a patient is near the end of their life. This is similar to what Haney was talking about a few minutes ago with avoiding critical care when really what's needed is comfort care. But here it's more so just acknowledging the fact that this is someone who's dying and acting in a way that reflects that. The elderly patients who have a very poor quality of life, maybe those that I would term the ones that are trying to die, (laughs) and we're not letting them die because we're sticking needles in them, we're sticking drips up on them, and we're doing investigations on them when really we should be recognizing that they're at the end of their life. Mike Weinstock, author of Bounce Back's Emergency Physician, Ohio says that we do things in medicine like prescribe antibiotics. We order certain tests because we think that we know what the patient wants, but we actually aren't great at it, correct? Maybe 50% of the time. And the corollary to this is that the patients with the highest satisfaction can also have the highest early mortality risk with the inference that when we modify our typical best practice into what we think the patient wants, it can only be equivalent or more likely worse practice when we change management to improve satisfaction. So we're bad at gauging expectations. And when we try to satisfy expectations, we can harm. So how do we address that? Make sure that the patient and their family know, maybe with a little scripting, that I'm managing their care as I would a family member. Second, curiously, I ask them for permission to practice good medicine. I know this seems counterintuitive because they're coming to me for their care. However, this is a powerful and effective technique to be able to provide the best care and avoiding harm, which could come as a result of over-testing or over-managing. That sounds totally kooky to say, but it's a valid question that Mike actually uses in situations such as a patient with a viral URI who demands antibiotics. You don't need them. Yes, I do. I always need them when I get a winter cold. No, you don't. Yes, I do. No, you on and on. Pause. Reframe. Do I have permission to practice good medicine? Sounds ridiculous, right? It can be off-putting. Or another way to say it that's not so heavy-handed and clunky or kooky is, here's what I'd recommend to my family member. And this is so at the core of why we went into medicine, practicing good medicine rather than defensive medicine or medicine to satisfy. The best medicine, that's what we have to offer. Reflecting on what we've just heard, putting ourselves in the patient's shoes, doing what's medically right, patient welfare first, keeping it peak knowledge, judicious use of IV fluids, tests, and opioid prescribing, making a habit of pausing when depleted, acknowledging the end of life, and allowing a natural death. All of these things are about giving ourselves permission to practice good medicine that considers this patient's needs above all else. Personally, I've gone from Hippocrates dropout with chest pain 
to using decision tools, serial troponins, and shared decision-making, and have discovered that when patients are presented with the risk, the likelihood of a major adverse cardiac event, most want to go home. When I can, I order an ultrasound first instead of a CT scan in patients with suspected renal colic. Radiation harms, and I might get the information I need without any. I do everything I can to avoid hyperoxia and cardiac arrest survivors because hyperoxia may worsen neurologic injury. Using the Canadian C-spine, Canadian CT head rules to avoid unnecessary imaging. As you listen to this show throughout the year, educating yourself, you're gaining knowledge that keeps you at the top of your game. But that knowledge, it's the palette for the art of medicine. How you use that palette and those colors and that knowledge, it's up to you. But we do have some direction that we're given right from the start of our careers. Actually, before we even become professionals, there is a reason that we take an oath that gives us the central ethic of medical practice. Primum non nocere. First or above all else, do no harm.